For today's opening sponsored section, a quick horror story brought to you by Riverside. My first ever podcast was for a former employer, a VC firm. And when I finally convinced my three bosses, the partners, to greenlight my very first podcast idea, it was a big deal. The stakes only got higher during the first interview, too, because the partners had asked one of the most successful, busy CEOs we'd invested in for his precious time, spend time with me, a novice podcaster. What could go wrong? Well, the interview itself went great. But afterwards is where things went wrong. I opened the audio and it was a disaster. All kinds of weird drops and robo-voices. Entire sections were unusable. And why? Because I was using tools built for conference calls, not show production big mistake. Today, I avoid the stress because I use Riverside, both for Unthinkable and all my shows. Riverside is the easiest way to record podcasts and video in studio quality, all from your browser from anywhere in the world. Plus, you can even clip your content for social media right from their platform. Plans start at just eight bucks a month, and you can try their tools for free to get started. Visit riverside.fm to learn more. Hey, it's Jay, and this is another one-shot. These are the short-form monologue episodes that we run in between our longer narratives. Both of these episode types, by the way, are part of a journey that we're on to understand one idea. What does it take to create more deeply resonant work? We talk a lot about things like reach, revenue, all these things in our work to grow a business, to leave our legacies, to help and serve other people. What about resonance? I feel like that's something we can learn. And so we're on a journey to understand it. And in the one shots, along with my newsletter, these are kind of my perspective, a new observation, a new insight or personal story to complement the stories and insights from other people on the longer form episodes we publish. So that's the purpose of the one shot and how it fits into our overall journey to understand what it takes to create more resonant work. Today's one shot is called Every List is a Lie. We start today with a quote. The list is the origin of culture. It's part of the history of art and literature. What does culture want? To make infinity comprehensible. It also wants to create order. Not always, but often. And how, as a human being, does one face infinity? How does one attempt to grasp the incomprehensible? Through lists. These are the words of philosopher and novelist Umberto Eco. It surprised me when I first heard them because... He's someone who ostensibly built a reputation on being very smart and philosophical, and yet he's so fascinated by and even supportive of the humble, ubiquitous list. As a marketer, I know I've grown sick and tired of lists, and maybe you have too, whether in your job or as a consumer. The tips and tricks, the cheats and hacks, the seven simple steps to succeed, the 15 times friends made us laugh the hardest. I'm sick of it. Sick of it, I tell you. Could there be any more lists on the internet? But I also get the appeal. Lists feel certain, and despite my own daily to-do list, lists feel attainable. As Echo puts it, we like lists because we don't want to die. There's a control that we feel browsing a list that we might otherwise feel we lack in life as finite creatures. I think lists also feel tantalizing. And I really like that word to describe a really specific type of content, tantalizing. It evokes some kind of immediate obsession that we feel once we're presented with content, which promises the slightly unreachable. Someone has gone and dug up something that we didn't or couldn't. And just hearing the headline, we start to drool like a dog before bacon or like a J 
before bacon. We think, I gotta have it. I gotta know. Give me that list. In 2009, Umberto Eco had created an exhibit all about lists in the Louvre. The Louvre! An exhibit about lists. In this exhibit, he wanted to explore the essential nature of lists to humanity and then put on display the works of poets and artists who list things through their work. I'm pretty sure whatever list-based thing ended up in that exhibit had some kind of higher calling or purpose than the usual internet list, don't you think? But I also think that, like so much art, the final product is not what makes it meaningful so much as the intent and the labor before it. The intent and the labor, the story and the work. That's what informs the work, that's what informs the final piece, and I think that's what gives it meaning. Really, some of history's greatest artists and thinkers seem to have embraced the list. Aside from Echo, you'll find lists in the works of Homer, James Joyce, and Thomas Mann. You'll find lists across history, documenting some important discoveries as plain as new plants and as incredible as the stars, as well as collecting the names of saints or war heroes. Routines and habits have long been documented throughout history, too. Ingredients, to-do lists, menus, instructions. When you think about it, lists are pretty incredible creations. I think anything that makes complexity simpler deserves some kind of place in our lives, of course, depending on the intent and labor before it. We have to wonder, what's the intent or the work that went into most of the lists that we find today online that profess to teach us something about our jobs. Is it actually to round up the top 10 of something in some academic sense? Or are those the 10 people that this brand just wanted to be affiliated with publicly, or even to reach out to them and ask them to share this piece after it was published? What's the intent behind our lists? And how did that inform the work that followed, the work that we do? Did we endure the painful but worthy process endured by so many great curators? Or... Do we slap together a bunch of stuff that somehow serves us more than the audience? Worse, do we cram our own products or projects into the list? What? I'm proud of what we do. And hey, I put us fourth, not first. Lists themselves aren't bad. Of course they're not. But the intent and the labor leading up to a list might deserve more interrogation, both when we consume lists and more importantly, for our efforts to resonate when we create them. And I'm sure that my cynicism about the list is due in part thanks to how common they are. They're so ubiquitous today. But mostly I think that my angst is because a lot of these lists are Trojan horses and transparent Trojan horses at that. They're created by people in business as a means to sneak sell us on something. And maybe their list includes their own product or service or content. And maybe they contact us afterwards and say, can you share this list? Look, I quoted you. Or maybe the agenda is more hidden. By publishing a list of how they did something and then promoting it and packaging it as gospel truth, they become more influential. Said another way, lists often lie. That ultimate guide you found is not actually the playbook. It's not actually the final, aka ultimate word on how to do something start to finish. It's one way to do that thing. And it might not work for anyone and any time aside from the one creator or team that did it at that one time. That episode you're listening to, sharing somebody's career journey, isn't really the full series of steps they took to succeed. After all, the podcaster had to fit a lifetime into their runtime. Those 10 books aren't really the top 10. 
Maybe the creator recalled a few that they knew or read, scanned a few more, borrowed from other lists, rounding up books, and created their subjective ranking. What was their methodology? How did you find and rank and compare the 10? What went into creating this list? What was their intent behind the piece? Was it made for us or for them? I'm sick of it. Sick of it, I tell you. I want to read you a list that I found on the back of a container of a type of food called French's Crispy Fried Onions. French's Crispy Fried Onions. Those are the wildly unhealthy and delicious topping to the wildly unhealthy and delicious green bean casserole that my mom usually makes around Thanksgiving. Shredded green beans, cream of mushroom soup, crispy fried onions inside and on top. I need a nap after just one serving of this stuff. Every year, as we scoop more and more of the warm, gloppy goodness onto our plates, we joke to each other. What? It's a vegetable. Nope. It's a vice. Now, the best part of this clearly a health food food are those crispy fried onions. Onions, I recently learned, which don't just want to tickle your taste buds, but also persuade your purchases. Here is a list on the back of the box of how to make green bean casserole according to French's crispy fried onions. Now, ostensibly, this is a list to help you make my mom's glorious side dish, but really, it's a Trojan horse for other branded products, except the belly of this horse, as you'll see, is made of glass, and the soldiers hiding inside are just sitting there covering their eyes like my toddler, going, na-na-na-na-na-na, you can't see me. And then you cut over to me on the ground, dressed as a Greek warrior, pointing my spear at the horse. You guys are like, right there. Does this actually work on people, really? Okay, let's go to the recipe for green bean casserole. One can Campbell's, registered trademark, condensed cream of mushroom soup. Okay, hold on. We have, I have to interrupt the list already. It can't just be any cream of mushroom soup. It has to be Campbell's. Are you sure to make this dish? Really? I need that? Hmm. I love two things about this item, and I'm not sure that love is actually the right word, but I love how bizarrely specific it feels once you read it. Like, to make green bean casserole, you need Campbell's, this one brand, and no one else. This one brand of an ingredient sold by a bunch of other brands. Okay. The second thing I love is imagining how many emails and meetings had to take place over at French's HQ to decide that, A, we have to include the registered trademark symbol. If we don't, how will they know not to launch a competitor company? Huh? How are they going to know that Campbell's is the brand? We got to include that registered trademark. Okay, so that's decided. And then B, we have to capitalize condensed cream of mushroom soup. This is the most corporate brand of goopy soup that's ever souped. I love it so much. But I'm still not sure love is actually the right word. Anyways, the list continues. Three quarter cup milk. Okay. One eighth teaspoon. And this next phrase is all bold. McCormick, registered trademark, pure ground black pepper. That is chef's kiss. This is the coupe de gracie. It's the the cherry on top. The twist of the grinder above a healthy salad. It's a vegetable, dad. I swear. This dish, super healthy. We're talking about ground black pepper here. Not the meal. Not the main ingredients. Ground black pepper. 
50% of the flakes could be like actual soot from an actual volcano. And if you tasted a slight little spice after a bite, you'd go, yeah, cool, pepper, moving on. That's not good enough for French's. Oh, no. For this dish to work, apparently you have to buy McCormick. One of the ultimate examples of undifferentiated food commodities has to come from bold McCormick registered trademark, pure ground, forget old ground, regular old ground, that won't do, black pepper. French's please. (laughs) Look, I understand that most of us don't sell actual commodities like ground black pepper, but way too often we end up creating things that feel like commodities that really are commodities in our space and then trying really hard to convince everyone else that what we offer is somehow special and unique. So we cram it into the list. We over-promote it. It's got to be bold with the registered trademark. It's got to be this brand. It's got to come with a fancy name. Now, it's not just grounded. No, 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 no. It's not just ground. It's pure ground, baby. <laughs> come on. Often, this is because we don't think critically enough about the intent behind the work we do even if what we offer is not ground pepper, thankfully, is our goal to generate X number of months this month or to help others? What's the intent behind our work? What if helping others is what yields results? What if simply providing value without asking for any in return is what gives us more value in the end? The intent behind our work is so often clear to others, even if we fail to make it clear to ourselves. So we better be damn sure that we do. And that helps us avoid coming across as transparently fake or pushy like French's did. Yes, I absolutely want to see results from my own work, but I have to pull a kind of mental jujitsu move on myself. I have to pin to the mat the part of me that is earning, that is yearning to turn the screws tighter, to juice the numbers faster, to generate results right now. I need the part of me that wants to serve others to win, to remain on top, and to guide the work. The more we do that, I think, the better the results will be. The more we make a difference in the work or lives of others, the more they'll respond. In this line of work, there's this beautiful reciprocity to be found if only we'd approach the work with the right intent and then allow that intent to inform our work. Then the resulting projects lists, or otherwise, might actually feel much more worthy of being on display, whether or not we're in a museum. We have the chance today, right now, to act more like the historian or librarian who tries to curate something meaningful. We can put in that hard but worthy emotional labor to distill complexity into simplicity. That could be the value we provide. And when we turn to the list as our output, it's a worthy list, an earnest list. It contains real value, no sneak selling. But make no mistake, despite the simplicity of the final piece, the hard work that came before it was really what made it meaningful. What is your intent? Who do you serve? What is this for? And what must you do to craft it well? So why am I sick of lists? Because most lists lie. The people behind a given list might have the wrong intent, or else they haven't gone through the emotional labor needed to create anything of genuine value. We are who the work is for, but we didn't figure into their process. Way too many people and teams today profess to teach or inspire, 
only to hand us a laughably transparent Trojan horse for their own selfish aims. Trojan horses made of glass. Ingredient lists made of registered trademarks. Roundups, rankings, and interviews made of friends or prospects. Umberto Eco's view of the list was as a cultural totem, the final artifact of a long process of curiosity and creativity. But in our business or working worlds, how often is that the kind of gift we receive or create? It's time for us to ditch the hidden agendas. And if that means ditching the list entirely, I'm all for it. It isn't actually that healthy anyway. Thank you so much for listening. Every time you do, by the way, you're supporting an independent podcast. And so every bit of your support actually goes a long way to keeping this show going and growing. If you'd like to lend a little bit more support, a couple suggestions. Number one, share the show with one friend. That's it. Just one single friend. Or number two, subscribe to my newsletter. It's totally free and I send it every Friday morning. And very similar to this show, it explores what it takes to create work that resonates. You'll be in good company with thousands of creative individuals, both independent professionals like freelancers and online creators, and also in-house marketers from brands ranging from the New York Times and Salesforce to local businesses, small businesses, and fast-growing startups. It's called Playing Favorites, and again, it's totally free. That's at jayaconzo.com. You can subscribe right at the top. Thank you so, so much for supporting this show. Again, simply listening does that, but I appreciate anything else you can do to help out this show. We work really hard to make it for you every week. All right, that's it for me. We're back next time with another full-blown narrative-style episode all about what it takes to resonate. Until then, keep making what matters. See ya. This episode was sponsored by Riverside, trivia question about this show for you. I've interviewed more than 200 individuals for about 150 original stories for Unthinkable. How many of those people do you think were interviewed in person, face-to-face? The answer? Seven. Yeah, seven. The rest were done virtually. I learned that you can actually build rapport virtually with your guests the way you can in person and record studio-quality audio remotely and create what I think and and I hope that you can agree is a slightly above average sounding show. You can do all that virtually. And I use Riverside to do it. Riverside lets you record both audio and video interviews. You get separate tracks recorded and they don't use the same technologies, in other words, voice over IP used by Zoom or Skype that creates all those problems and robo voices and drops. Instead, each track comes without any of that. Plans start at 8 bucks a month, and it's great for novice podcasters or the resource-constrained, but they're so powerful that even brands like Marvel, The New York Times, Spotify, TED, shows like How I Built This, and Gary Vee's podcast all use Riverside too. Learn more at riverside.fm.